परमेश्वराय विमहे भरतवाये धीमहे तन्नो ब्रह्मा प्रचोदयात् May we know that supreme lord may we contemplate that supreme reality may that brahman illumine our thoughts om shanti 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 hi peace 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 <coughs> The topic this morning is a question of identity. We're going to talk about what is a religious identity, what is a spiritual identity, <clears throat> are they the same thing, are they variations of the same thing, how do they cause us to look upon ourselves, how do they cause us to look upon others of different religious or spiritual identities. <clears throat> The idea for this topic arose uh, at the Parliament of the World's Religions in Melbourne, Australia last December uh, at a presentation entitled The Rabbi and the Swami. The two presenters were men who were roughly of the same age. Both of them had been born into Jewish families. Both of them came of age in around the 1960s in the New York City area. Both of them went on to have distinguished careers. Yet today one of them is a rabbi and the other one is a swami. So this question of religious identity was very much interwoven into that whole presentation. <clears throat> First, each of the two men spoke briefly about his life, giving an autobiographical account of his journey. <clears throat> the first one to speak was Fred Morgan. Fred Morgan is a young man <clears throat> in New York became entranced with Indian philosophy. He became so fascinated with it by the foreignness of Indian thought that it impelled him to learn Sanskrit and Pali and Apabramsha so that he was able to study the texts of all these three great religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, all in the original languages. But even that wasn't enough. And so his journey took him to India where he felt he could be thoroughly immersed in these great spiritual traditions. Then one day in Varanasi, the sacred city of Shiva, something very unexpected happened. He had an epiphany, and the epiphany was this. I'm a monotheist. I'm an ethical monotheist Jew. And from that moment on, India looked very different in his eyes. He found that he was very disturbed by some of the aspects of society. He was very disturbed by the poverty he saw around him. And so the next stage of his journey took him to London, where he enrolled in the Leo Beck College. It was there that he got a clear sense of this epiphany that his dharma was to serve the Jewish community and that he could best do that by becoming a rabbi. So today, Fred Morgan is a rabbi in Melbourne, Australia. Before he gave his autobiographical account, he spoke briefly about the purpose of religion, the role religion plays in our lives. And the way he sees it, he thinks that religion is that which imparts a sense of pattern and order and meaning in human life. <clears throat> After he had spoken, the other presenter got up, Russell Kruckman. He too grew up in the New York City area. He too had a solid academic education <clears throat> and was early in life a successful professor of Indian literature, uh, in English literature at a university in Indiana. And then his life changed one evening when he happened to meet Ram Dass at a cocktail party in 1970. 
And Ramdas told him all about Kundalini Yoga. Now, Russell Kruckman had a good grounding in Western philosophy. He understood it intellectually. But this idea that a philosophy and a practice could lead to spiritual transformation, that to him was a revolutionary idea. So revolutionary that he went to India in search of spiritual masters. He found his guru there in the person of Swami Muktananda, and for 12 years he was trained in the um, <clears throat> disciplines of Kashmir Shaivism. This is a non-dualistic form of Hinduism, very close to Vedanta. And after 12 years, he was given his vows of sannyas in one of the Saras in the Saraswati monastic order, and since then he has been known as Swami Shankarananda. Today he is the head of a Shiva ashram outside of Melbourne, Australia. <clears throat> now, neither of the two men had met before the parliament, but here they were coming together to give this presentation entitled, The Rabbi and the Swami. After they had given their autobiographical information, they opened it up to questions and answers from the audience. So I stepped forward and I said to them, this question of identity is central to both of your religious traditions. In Judaism, the question of identity revolves around being the member of a particular community that has a particular covenant or relationship with God. In Kashmir Shaivism, there is also this question of identity, and that again is central to the religion. But here, in Kashmir Shaivism, it's looked upon differently. The foundational text is known as the Shiva Sutra, and this is sometimes spoken of, the teaching of it, as the yoga of supreme identity. So I asked the rabbi and the swami, I would like to hear your ideas about spiritual identity or religious identity, and then I would like to hear the two of you speak to each other about this question. Swami Shankarananda laughed, and he said that he and the rabbi had not met before the parliament, but that they had exchanged several emails in preparing for this presentation. And he said that my question was one that they had considered, and they had exchanged quite a few emails about that very question. He said, we couldn't come to any sort of agreement on it, and finally we had to agree to disagree, agreeably. <clears throat> then the rabbi spoke. The rabbi said very honestly that as a Jew, he is a member of a small community of perhaps 15 million people worldwide. And he admitted very candidly that he feels heartache whenever he sees a member of the Jewish community drift away into another religious or spiritual tradition. He said his personal challenge here in conversing with the Swami was not to see him as a lost Jewish soul. <clears throat> then the Swami spoke, Swami Shankarananda, and he spoke about the idea of India's Sanatana Dharma or eternal religion. And he said that as far as he's concerned, he has this dual religious identity. He's a Swami, and at the same time, he still considers himself a Jew. He said, I'm a Jew, a Reformed Jew, very Reformed. <clears throat> then he addressed this question of seeking outside of your tradition. And he said, I don't find it any cause for heartache when anyone embarks on a path seeking the higher Dharma. And if a person becomes enlightened through a religion other than the one they were born into, that's fine with me too. Why should I feel sadness when anybody seeks or finds enlightenment. <clears throat> At this point, a woman got up who identified herself as a Jew from 
Melbourne, Australia. And she's told the rabbi that she is very, very attracted to the teachings in Hinduism and Buddhism. And she said that she feels very, very conflicted because <clears throat> as a Jew, she feels that she's being spiritually nourished by Hinduism and Buddhism, but she feels that she can never really identify and become a member of either of those communities. <clears throat> and so the rabbi said to her, we're all seeking enlightenment. No matter what our spiritual background, we're all seeking enlightenment. And he said that for the type of spirituality she is interested in, that Judaism also can offer that through their mystical teachings, the Kabbalah. So he said that she could remain within her Jewish community and still have the benefit of learning meditation, the techniques that lead to union with the divine. <clears throat> then a second woman got up, and she had a question for Swami Shankarananda. She said, Swami, I really, really like what I've heard you say here this morning. She said, the Jewish community really needs teachers like you. You could do so much good for the Jewish community. But please, Swami, can't you put on a kippah and call yourself a rabbi? <laughs> the kippah is the skull cap that the rabbis wear. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> what happened here is that um, <clears throat> she also it was attracted very much by the teachings that she had heard from somebody who was not of her religious community. And this question of identity, again, was an obstacle. Swami Shankarananda said, well, you know, I like to think of myself as a rabbi, but a rabbi for everyone, not just for one community. And then to lighten up the mood a little bit, because it had become rather serious, he recalled a time from his childhood when every day he used to walk by a Jewish school. And over the school, he would see the sign over the door that's read yeshiva. And he said, when he looks back at that now, he reads that sign as saying, yes, Shiva." <laughs> now, this was an interesting little drama that was playing out among these four people. <clears throat> we had the Swami, who was very comfortable with his own religious identity and with the religious identity of the rabbi and the two women who had asked the questions. You had the rabbi who was comfortable with his own religious identity, but the identity of the swami gave him a little bit of discomfort. Then you had the first woman who <clears throat> felt that real spiritual nourishment was outside of her Jewish community in the teachings of Buddhism and Hinduism, but that she could never identify as anything other than a Jew. And then finally you had the other woman who very much liked what she heard from the Swami, but she couldn't get around the fact that he was wearing a Garawa robe. For her, his identity was an obstacle. Now, the parliament had a way of challenging people who were there, because people from all these different religious traditions were coming together and talking about any number of issues. And even as the parliament could throw out challenges, it also had a way of pointing you towards possible answers. <clears throat> So looking back at this particular event, I remembered a presentation from four days earlier and something that had been spoken of there. And this was a theory developed by a psychologist named James Fowler called the Stages of Faith. <clears throat> uh, James Fowler worked at Emory University in Atlanta. And when I gave this talk at Tribuco, I asked Swami Yogeshananda, who was formerly of the Atlanta Center, if by any chance he knew James Fowler. 
And Swami Yogeshananda said, know him? Well, of course I know him. He spoke at the Vedanta Society there. And then he said, there's one thing wrong with Fowler's theory. It doesn't go far enough. And I said to Swami, that's very interesting because that's exactly the words that, you took the words right out of my mouth. So let's look at this James Fowler's theory of the stages of faith and see if this can give us any type of insights into how we think of ourselves as religious people or spiritual people, and how we think of others and how we relate to them. First of all, Fowler's basic premise is that there is a process of spiritual development that takes place in human beings and that this process of spiritual development in some way parallels the processes of biological maturation and psychological maturation. <clears throat> now, he's called he's calls this a theory of the stages of faith. So we have to question, what is a theory? A theory is actually a premise that is based upon some observable evidence, but it is not 100% confirmed. If it were completely confirmed and validated, it would no longer be called a theory. It would be called something else. So we have to keep in mind that a theory may be partially true, but we lack conclusive proof for the whole thing. Um, secondly, <clears throat> psychologists have tested his theory, and his first two stages out of these six stages do show some correlation between biological maturing and psychological growth. But beyond that, they can't go because once you get into these realms of religious belief and philosophical ideas, it's pretty hard to test those in a laboratory in a scientific manner. <clears throat> uh, then we have to question the whole perspective of James Fowler who created this theory. What is his background? Where is he coming from? What is his worldview? First of all, he is a developmental psychologist. Secondly, he also happens to be a Methodist minister and a theologian. So he has backgrounds in Western science as well as in Protestant Christianity. How did he put together this theory? He interviewed 600 or so men, women, and children between the ages of 4 and 88. All of these men, women, and children were either Roman Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, agnostic, or atheist. So does Fowler's theory apply to people of other religions? Does it apply to Hindus or Buddhists or Jains or Sikhs or people whose whole experience of religion might be very different from either the Judeo-Christian or the secular West? And Fowler is very honest in his book. He says, I simply don't know. He said it would take years more of additional research to see if this theory applies to other religions as well. Now, stages of faith. What is faith? Fowler points out very quickly, very early on, that by faith he does not mean belief in the ordinary sense. Instead, what he means by faith is the ability of a human being to find meaning in life, to live life in a meaningful way, to engage in life in a sense that there is a purpose and that I can grow during this purpose. So faith for Fowler is something that is dynamic and ever-evolving. As a matter of fact, his, division, his definition of faith is very close to that of the Indian view, where the Sanskrit word shraddha is used. Shraddha is often translated as faith, but it does not mean belief. Rather, it means conviction born of experience. Now, 
Another question that comes up with this theory is whether a person accepts the idea of one life or many. Uh, I would say probably that almost all of Fowler's informants, being either of the Western Judeo-Christian or secular worldview, adopt the one life theory. We're born one time, we live our lives, and then we either cease to be or we go on to some sort of eternal existence. This one life theory um, is very popular in Western thinking. Um, It goes uh, back for quite a ways, as a matter of fact. And um, this is the general prevailing worldview in the Western world. Now, on the other hand, um, in the Indian religions, Eastern religions, um, Buddhist, Hindu, and so forth, there's the idea that each of us has lived many, many different times. Now, with the one life theory, um, some people who adopt this idea believe that every one of us is born as a blank slate. Uh, They use the Latin term tabula rasa to explain that. This idea goes back actually as far as Aristotle in ancient Greece. Thomas Aquinas adopted it into Christian theology. Uh, It became very popular among social scientists in the 20th century. We all start out this blank slate upon which the experiences of our lives imprint themselves. And this is how we grow. Now, on the other hand, if you accept the idea that we have lived many times, then each one of us comes into this particular life at a particular stage of development. We are not all born as blank slates. Every one of us has this baggage from a previous life. We're each born with a fully formed personality. And as a result, every one of us comes into this life exactly where we left off the last time around. So we have to consider these two different worldviews also and how these impact on this idea of spiritual development. Now, since 1981, when Fowler published his theory, it has become very, very popular, and a great many people, particularly in Protestant circles, have used it. They've adopted it for various purposes, such as pastoral counseling. And, of course, many of them have their own take. They use it for their own particular purposes. They put their own spin on it. And, as a Vedantin, I will be doing exactly the same thing this morning. What you will be hearing is filtered through my Vedantic awareness. So let's look at this theory of spiritual development, the six stages of faith, and see if there's any merit to it. Fowler begins by saying that the first stage of human development is what he calls intuitive projective. And he says this roughly corresponds to a child between the ages of two and seven, from the time a child learns how to speak until about the age of seven. Now, if you remember your own childhood back that far, you might remember that the world was really a place of wonder, where everything was new and fresh and intriguing. And you needed to explore, and you wondered about things. There was so much to learn, and there was so much that was puzzling. In other words, a very young child has a poor understanding of the world. And so, not having yet developed this faculty of reason and figuring things out, a child depends upon its own imagination for the answers. And so sometimes children come up with explanations for things in the world around them that will either horrify or amuse or amaze their parents. Uh, You may remember some of these things from your own experience. I can remember, for example, um, when I was little, trying to figure out what made it rain. And I had this idea that somehow way up there in the sky, there was this big network of pipes that were all crisscrossing. 
And when it rained, it meant that God was up there in his long white nightgown, running frantically around from one place to another, opening these valves so the rain would fall. So this is my idea, my interpretation of why it rains. <clears throat> now, the other thing about being a child is that you are very small, and adults look very, very large. And so, also, children are relatively powerless, and so they depend upon their parents for protection, for guidance, for nurturance, and for answers to questions when there's something they don't understand. <clears throat> and so children have the sense of trust. They will trust that their parents will guide them properly and tell them the right things. <clears throat> now, this is all fine and good, and this works according to developmental psychology. But if we look at this from the standpoint of Vedanta, we also see that adults can exist in a state of awareness which is pretty similar to that. We don't have full knowledge. This is one of the basic teachings of Vedanta. We do not have that infinite knowledge that the divine has because we are these small, limited, finite creatures. And not having all of the answers, we can either rely on our own imagination to make up something, or we can ask somebody that we trust. And so therefore, there is at this stage of development this trust in authority. Now, none of us have the answers to everything, and in many different aspects of our lives, we will go to a professional when we need help, either an investment broker or a doctor, a therapist. Um, we go to certain newspapers or sources for information about what's going on in the world with a somewhat degree of trust. <clears throat> So in the same way, we are trusting individuals um, at this stage of development. Now, if you um, also look at it this way, you think that I am a limited person. I am limited to this body and mind. And this whole world is populated by other people who are similarly limited. So there are, I share this planet with almost 7 billion other people of the same limitation. And at the same time, we find that some people may be physically bigger or stronger than we are, or more intellectually brilliant, or more persuasive. And so this will bring out feelings of personal inadequacy. And all of these ideas characterize this first stage of um, spiritual development. Now what happens is back to um, <clears throat> the psychological, at the second stage, a child begins to go to school, go to church, interacting with other students, teachers, members of the religious community, and begins to develop a sense of self that extends beyond the body-mind of the small infant. I am now a member of a family. I'm a member of this larger community. And so these feelings of identification with other people also begin to develop, a sense of community but it is very much a sense of community of people just like me. Now, if there is a community of people just like me, that also means that there are communities of people who are not like me. And so at the second stage, which is called the mythic literal stage of spiritual development, there is very much this idea that I am this particular identity. <clears throat> How does this play out in the religious sphere? Uh, this very much corresponds to what we might call the fundamentalist mindset. I belong to this particular denomination. Everybody here thinks exactly the way I do. I think the way everybody does. 
there's a certain sense of safety and security here. And we have this wall around us, which is really sheltering us and protecting us from the bigger world out there where there's a lot of diversity. And somehow, that diversity causes me some uneasiness, even to the point that I can feel threatened because somebody else belongs to a different religion than I do. So this is the fundamentalist mindset. There is a distrust of the other. There's fear, distrust. Sometimes this erupts into threat. And as we know, this can be very dangerous. Also, the fundamentalist tends to look at everything in the world in terms of black and white. It's an either-or sort of world. And there's also this idea of justice. Good behavior is rewarded. Bad behavior is punished. So what happens suddenly when we see somebody that we think of as a thoroughly good person having something terrible happen? This can be very, very disturbing because a good person should not receive this sort of punishment. And so therefore, we find fundamentalist preachers such as Pat Robertson who says that Hurricane Katrina happened because the people of New Orleans have this moral laxity, especially when they celebrate Mardi Gras, and this was God's punishment. So this is all part of the fundamentalist mindset. And again, the people who go along with this are putting their trust in that authority. Now at stage three, this is known as the synthetic conventional stage. And here Fowler says, synthetic means synthesizing, reaching out beyond your own community and trying to find sort of ties of commonality, finding sense in the broader world. And also the sense of convention and the sense of convenery, coming together. So people at this stage of development are what we could, would call people who are mainstream religious. <clears throat> the whole world is filled with people who are mainstream religious. This is probably the major mindset of religious people in the world, whether they are Hindus or Buddhists or Christians, Muslims or anything else that I belong to this religion, this is the set of tenets that I believe in, I'm part of a community, that community gives me a sense of family, belonging, security. <clears throat> People at this stage of development are very generally sincere religious people, but they do not question deeply. The idea of questioning, again, poses a sort of threat because you want to have this oneness with your community. You don't want to be at odds with them. This is what gives you your sense of security and grounding. And so many people at this stage of development are extremely sincere, very loyal followers, tireless workers for their church, their denomination, for what they believe in. But again, they are not leaders, they are not original thinkers. Now, the downside of this is that if your identity is so tied to that, it is also tied to the expectation and judgments of other people in your community. So there is a strong need to conform. There is very, very little in the way of independent thinking or even faith in your own judgment. <clears throat> so people may have deep convictions, but they hold on to them very strongly, but they do not typically look at them in a critical way. <clears throat> Also, if there is the sense of expectation that you have to live up to, if you fail to live up to it, this can lead to feelings of diminished personal worth. I'm not good enough. I'm a sinner. And this, of course, is not a healthy attitude for any spiritual aspirant. Finally, again, there is still this idea of us and them, but it is not 
as critical as it was at the fundamentalist stage. There still is the idea, yes, I may be a Lutheran or a Baptist, or I may be a Muslim, I may be a Reformed Jew, whatever, um, and other people are other things. But there is not that distrust or that fear or that animosity that we find among the groups that we tend to call more fundamentalist in their outlook. So, uh, Fowler says that each of his six stages of faith, and so far we've only covered the first three, he says these are not cubbyholes where we jump from one to the other as we grow or develop. Rather, he said, the stages of faith are periods of relative stability in our lives, where we're comfortable with our religion, we're comfortable with who we are as a member of that religion, we're comfortable with the answers that that religion gives towards the problems of life, and everything kind of flows nicely. But then <clears throat> there are periods where there is doubt, upheaval, there are periods where we begin to question and these can be very upsetting, very, very difficult and trying times. Um, these happen between all the stages. I've delayed speaking about it until this one because actually the transition from three to four is in Fowler's um, research really the tough one. This is really, really the difficult period of spiritual questioning. So what happens at this point is suddenly your old religion just isn't big enough anymore. It fails to provide all the answers to life's questions. You have been challenged to the point where you can no longer find satisfactory answers in what you have been taught to believe and what you have accepted up until this point in your life. Eventually what happens is there will be some sort of resolution. You put the pieces back together, but it can be a long and painful process. Uh, psychologists who have interviewed people going through these stages of spiritual questioning report very often that the people say, well, I felt all adrift. I didn't know where I belonged. I felt like I was shipwrecked. I was on a desert island. I was isolated. But eventually, finding the answers, managing to reconstitute your life in a sense of meaning, then you trans, trans, you have a transition into the next stage of stability. Now, for Fowler, this is his fourth stage, which he calls the um, individuative reflective stage. Now, he warns people in spiritual growth. He says that it is not. He says the development of faith is not a gentle, undemanding stroll through life. There are going to be some rough patches. So, having gone through this major transition, this really tough period, the person is now at what Fowler calls the individuative reflective stage. The first thing that happens is the person realizes this world is really a much more complex place than I had ever thought before. All those easy, pat answers that my religious tradition, for example, might have given me before, they just really don't hold up to reality. The world is really a complicated place. So I have to look at it in a logical way. I have to take it apart. I have to scrutinize it. Um, part of this is what is known as demythologizing. Up until now, it's very possible that a person has accepted all of the teachings of a religion, particularly the teachings that come through narrative, stories, for example, has accepted that as literal truth. So um, Noah built the ark and gathered the animals and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights and that really happened and that's a fact of history and that's why we have the Grand Canyon in Arizona and on and on and on. 
So at this fourth stage, there is this critical thinking and this demythologizing. These stories are there, these stories are important, they convey spiritual truths, but it's not what's on the surface. It's not just the simple myth or the legend. There is a meaning here, a real meaning, something if I can figure it out and discover it, I can apply it to my own life, to my own development, and profit by that. <clears throat> so all these stories suddenly, everything in your tradition, suddenly takes on a new richness. It's not that you're just throwing it out the window and discarding it as being superstitious. You're finding that, yes, there is meaning here, but it's much deeper and more wonderful and wiser than anything you had ever thought before. Now, at the same time, if that previous way of belief had shaped your personality, your whole way of living, who you thought you were, and suddenly you have had to reorganize it in a major different way, maybe even leave a particular religious tradition for another, this also changes your sense of who you are because your identity is certainly tied to what you believe, the community you belong to, how you act, what your view of the world is. And so the stage four is a restructuring of personal identity. Who am I? I'm not the person I used to be. I have a different sense of self. This former sense of self had been based upon expectations, upon conforming to my religious community, doing everything just the way I should, living up to God's expectations for me. But you know, now as a spiritual seeker, I'm responsible for my own destiny. At stage four, the ordinary religious believer, the mainstream religious person, has suddenly developed into a genuine spiritual seeker. And so this becomes a very exciting time of life. There is a sense now of this new personal responsibility, a sense of personal autonomy. And with that also arises a sense of respect for the personal autonomy of other people. You no longer have to believe and act exactly the way I do for me to feel comfortable. There's plenty of room in my world for diversity. I welcome the fact that you and I do not see eye to eye on everything all of the time. And so we have here, there is this emergence from this former confinement. And there is a sense of growing. Now, the rabbi, Rabbi Morgan, at the beginning of his talk at the parliament, had quoted a line of poetry from another rabbi. And that line of poetry said, life is a going and a growing. And I think this whole process, as we have examined it to this point, shows that life is a going and a growing. Um, from here, the next stage only gets better. And this is what Fowler calls the conjunctive stage. <clears throat> this is a stage where you've developed a new multidimensional sense of the world and of yourself. And there are four characteristics of this stage of faith development. <clears throat> First of all, there's a conscious awareness of what Fowler calls polar tensions in life. Now, what are polar tensions? <clears throat> By this, he means the fact that we recognize the dualism of this universe. We live in a realm of duality. There is darkness and there is light. There is good, there's bad, there's unity, there's disunity. All of these pairs of opposites that play out in this whole world of our experience. And of course, everybody realizes this even from the earliest stages that we live in this world of opposites. But now there is this real philosophical examination of what that means. What does it mean to live in a dualistic world? And really by 
contemplating this, we begin to understand that my own sense of existence is based on this duality. <clears throat> the fact that I am here even, uh, that I exist, is based on the fact that there is some sort of unity that has split and has caused the sense of duality, multiplicity, the creation of the universe. <clears throat> Uh, secondly, there comes the idea that truth cannot be limited to this clearly defined either-or thinking. <clears throat> it's no longer just a question of black and white, either-or. Whatever truth is, and a seeker at this level is still searching for the truth and will not say, I know the truth, but whatever that truth is, it is rich, it is ambiguous, it is multidimensional. It can even be paradoxical. And some people at this stage come to relish this idea of paradox. Now, what would you make of this line of poetry written by a modern mystic? <clears throat> this is from a poem about the dance of life. The dance only goes on because you have forgotten the steps. Now, are you going to say, well, that's not logical. That's nonsense. What is that? Or are you going to have one of those wonderful aha moments? There's an insight in here. I really get it. This idea of paradox can become very, very attractive at this stage of spiritual development because truth is greater than anything that we can figure out logically. Truth is way beyond the reach of the logical mind, beyond anything that our thoughts or speech can encompass, and we recognize that. Now, what happens when we recognize it, that, wow, it is so great? We get this renewed sense of wonder and awe at the world around us, Sri Ramakrishna used to say, you must have the ego of a child. And he used to say, look at how a child is. A child is totally unattached and just goes around with a sense of wonder at the world. We as adults have become so attached to our opinions and our preconceptions and our misconceptions. We have to let all of that go and again have that sense of wonder. Jesus said the same thing to his disciples. He said, be ye as little children in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, does he say, go back to Fowler stage one? No, that's not what he means by be ye as little children. He means have that sense of wonder. Without that sense of wonder, you cannot enter into that kingdom of heaven. And what is that kingdom? That kingdom is an inner place. It is within. It is a state of awareness. It is a state of sovereignty that you are in charge. You are no longer a prisoner of all those misconceptions and false ideas and indoctrinations that have been put on you. Rather, you are blossoming and finding that there is something wonderful and miraculous about this life. Uh, the Shiva Sutra, which is the foundational text of Kashmir Shaivism, this is the um, branch of Hinduism that Swami Shankarananda teaches, in the Shiva Sutra, we read, the stages of yoga constitute a fascinating wonder. Vismayo yoga bhumikaha. The stages of yoga constitute a fascinating wonder. So as we progress spiritually, as we grow spiritually, things just get more and more fascinating. Life becomes more and more of an adventure every day on the spiritual quest. Uh, the writer Peter Russell, who likes to draw parallels between <clears throat> Vedantic thinking and Western science, says the same thing. I think he's speaking about this stage of realization when he says, it's not that I'm seeing different things, it's that I'm seeing things differently. So again, this sense of wonder. <clears throat> 
And finally, in this fifth stage, comes the idea that religion is no longer uh, just emotional or intellectual assent. You just don't agree to something because this is what you've been taught. Instead, it ripens into this deep spirituality of experience. This is your own experience. This is your shraddha. And again, life is truly a going and a growing. At this point, the walls of separation are coming down. All of these ideas about denominationalistic thinking, for example, you become open to the teachings of other religions. You can read the Bible, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the Dhammapada, and you find spiritual nourishment in all of those. You begin to recognize that same spiritual teaching there in other places that you have so cherished in your own tradition from the beginning. And so all of these sectarian divides begin to dissolve, and with it, the boundaries of your own sense of identity begin to dissolve. Now finally, Fowler speaks about a sixth stage, which he calls the universalizing stage. And at this stage of spiritual development, the ego moves from the center of your experience of life. It gets pushed aside somehow. So you are no longer that egocentric, selfish person you were at the beginning of your quest. No longer is that ego there as the central lens coloring all of your experience. Instead, you are seeing things in a different light, and you're shedding all of these conditions of identity that have been imposed upon you, that you have imposed upon yourself all these many years. Instead, you're finding a greater sense of connectedness to the greater universe beyond your body, mind, intellect, and personality. And with this comes this newfound sense of self. And paradoxically, again, it is a sense of self based on selflessness. It is an expansion of self. And at this point, everything shines with value. Everything warrants respect, and everyone is worthy of love. Fowler says that few people reach this stage of spiritual development. In his examples, he gives a Mother Teresa, a Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and Martin Luther King Jr., a Gandhi, people whose lives have been dedicated to the service and betterment of others. <clears throat> And as Swami Yogeshananda said, this is all fine and good, but Fowler's theory just doesn't go far enough. And it doesn't because there is something still greater awaiting the spiritual aspirant. Now, one last reservation I'm going to have about Fowler's theory before we move on is that we have to ask, does spiritual growth really work this way? Can you really reduce it to this straight line progression from here to there? And I would say no. First of all, um, as Fowler points out, there are good people at all stages of spiritual development, people who feel that they are spiritually secure, in Christian language perhaps they are saved, um, they're reaching enlightenment, whatever. So good people exist at all stages of spiritual development. Also, every stage has its bright and its dark side. There's a downside to each one of these stages as well as a positive side. And Vedanta can explain this very clearly. It's because all six of these stages still exist within this realm of duality. We are not enlightened, and so we are still subject to maya, to all of the pairs of opposites, to the conflicts, the tensions, and so forth. Now, the third point is each one of these stages is true to a point. But, as Swami Vivekananda said, it's good to be born in a church, but bad to die in one. We must not be so tied to our convictions 
that we preclude the possibility of further growth. Spirituality, again, as the rabbi's poem said, life is a going and a growing. We must never deny ourselves that possibility or opportunity for spiritual growth. And then finally, this idea, again, of this progression. Does it really, really hold? And I would say no. Um, when I was preparing this talk, I had problems with that because I recognized within myself aspects of all of these different stages. And I think probably, you probably too, have recognized, well, that stage two, I can identify with this, and I can identify with something in five, and also with four. And this was true also of the congregations in San Diego and in Trabuco. They were very emphatic on this point. So I would say, rather than looking at this as this linear progression, I would rather look at these six stages as just a basket of possibilities, different attitudes, different practices, different ways of living, on which we all draw in creating our own sense of identity, our own religious personality, our own spiritual personality. Is there any progression at all? Yes, but I think that Fowler kind of missed the point. If you look at his stage one, it is this infantile stage where one's own self-awareness, sense of selfhood, is very much centered on this small body-mind complex. As a child grows, the sense of selfhood begins expanding out interacting with other people, with the community, with the larger world. As spiritual people, as we grow, our boundaries also become enlarged. And so as these boundaries enlarge, our own sense of ego and selfishness, that begins to disintegrate. And so finally, we have, from Fowler's six stages, at the beginning, we have the awareness that I am this body and this mind, and at the end, in the sixth stage, you have somebody who has pushed that sense of ego away from the center of experience and is living a very selfless life. So I would say there is a progression from selfishness to selflessness. And again, paradoxically, this diminution of ego, the shrinking of ego, is actually the expansion of self, the true self. So... <clears throat> Um, now, what happens beyond this? What happens beyond the sixth stage of faith? Um, as I was preparing this, uh, a passage from the Corinthians came to mind, uh, written by the Apostle Paul. For now, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even also as I am known now, what does this mean? This is a profound passage. <clears throat> For now, we see through a glass darkly. It's just beautiful poetry. We don't have full understanding. Vedanta will teach you this. We don't have the whole picture. We don't have omniscience. We don't have this limitless knowledge of who we are and what this world is all about. Our vision is dimmed by all of the restrictions of maya. We see through a glass darkly but then face to face. But when we become enlightened, we have a direct experience of the divine. Face to face, direct experience. <clears throat> now I know in part, my knowledge is fragmented, it's divided, it's not whole. I do not experience that consciousness of Nirguna Brahman. I am experiencing that small consciousness fragmented between these functions of mind and intellect and ego. <clears throat> but then I shall know even also as I am known 
in the state of ultimate knowing, the knower and the known become one. As the Mundaka Upanishad says, the one who knows Brahman becomes Brahman. <clears throat> now this is a, <clears throat> a statement of this non-dual awareness having gone beyond this whole appearance of this dual universe and found the true identity that I am Brahman, that I am the supreme, that I am that divine. The Upanishad says, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. The Shaivasir on realization will say, Shivoham, I am Shiva. And a great Jewish mystic of the 13th century, Abraham Abu Lafia, used to attain the state of Devikut, Hebrew for union with the divine. And he would cry out excitedly, He is I, and I am He. It's the same as the Tantrika in Hindu, Hinduism, who says, Soham, Hamsa, I am He, I am that, that I am. And so, I would like to amend the rabbi's poem, Life is a Going and a Growing, and to add something to that and say, Life is a Going and a Growing and a Knowing. Finally, the parliament had a way of throwing out these challenges to people and a way of directing people towards a possible answer. And there's no better way I can conclude this talk than by reading a passage from a rabbi, a great mystic of the early 20th century, which I heard at yet another presentation in the parliament. This was written by Rabbi Abraham Cook, who is considered one of the greatest Jewish mystics of modern times. And this passage sums up everything, really, that we have to know about the sense of religious identity, spiritual identity, and what it's all about. There is one who sings the song of his soul, discovering in his soul everything, utter spiritual fulfillment. There is one who sings the song of his people, emerging from the private circle of his soul, not expansive enough, not yet tranquil. He strives for fierce heights, clinging to the entire community of Israel in tender love. Together with her, he sings her song, feels her anguish, delights in her hopes. He conceives profound insights into her past and her future, deftly probing the inwardness of her spirit with the wisdom of love. Then there is one whose soul expands until it extends beyond the border of Israel, singing the song of humanity. In the glory of the entire human race, in the glory of the human forms, his spirit spreads, aspiring to the soul of humankind, envisioning its consummation. From this spring of life, he draws all his deepest reflections, his searching, striving, and vision. Then there is one who expands even further until he unites with all of existence, with all creatures, with all worlds, singing a song with them all. There is one who ascends with all these songs in unison, the song of the soul, the song of the nation, the song of humanity, the song of the cosmos resounding together, blending in harmony, circulating the sap of life, the sound of holy joy. Om Hridakashodito Hyatma Bodhabanus Tamoparit Sarvavyapi Sarvadhari Bhati Bhasayate Kilam. The sun of knowledge, risen in the space of the heart, drives away all darkness. All pervading and all sustaining it shines causing everything to shine. Om Shanti 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 Peace, peace, peace. <laughs>